has been said that all good things must come to an end. So, after service today, we're taking down all the Christmas stuff. If you want to help, feel free to hang out. I know, it's got to stop sooner or later, though. Although I did try to talk Kathy into letting me leave the tree up all year. So I wouldn't have to take it out of the garage again next year. She hasn't gone for that yet. So this year we got a live tree. Sooner or later, there will be no needles left. And she will then allow me to take it down. So we have our ways. We're also going to be wrapping up today, this morning, Acts chapter 7. So if you got your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Acts chapter 7, where we'll be picking it up about verse 44. And we'll finish uh, the, the sermon, the response of Stephen to his accusers who hold his life in the balance. If you want to join with me, we'll read from verse 44. It says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling, or asked to build a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hands not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who received the law by the direction of angels, but have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. And he said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses, they laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for the truth of your word, Father. And as we just wrap up uh, what Stephen has been uh, guiding us in as we began in Acts chapter 7, Lord, may we just be able to remember May we be able to apply it. Lord, help us not to be like those men who look at their face in a mirror and then turn away and forget what manner of man they saw. God, Stephen's charge was that of resisting the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that we would be those who are responding to the Holy Spirit. And that we would recognize that truth. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, we ask that you would be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've worked our way through Acts chapter 7, remember we began with a promise to Abraham. And Stephen, we see, beginning a ministry, really just feeding widows. And then he begins to share and, and tell people what God has done in his life, how Jesus had equipped him, and he was full of the Spirit. So when the Spirit moved... He would speak. It led him into an argument at a synagogue called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. And as they're there in the Synagogue of the Freedmen, in this argument, they get so upset that they bring him before the Sanhedrin, and they charge him with blasphemy, which means that this moment, chapter 7, as he begins to, to speak in his defense, is life or death. 
as life or death. Give your defense. And Stephen takes that opportunity not to give a defense, but to tell them the keys to learning how to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We'll see how they respond today as we take a look. And that's a question that we need to deal with. How are we responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Sometimes the Holy Spirit moves very simply. We read His Word, we see something that that God has laid on our hearts, and now we need to know, am I going to respond? Will I move forward? Will I be a doer of the Word, or a hearer only? Will I respond? Other times... The Holy Spirit may use someone or some something to convict us. Those are usually, I don't know, less uh, happy experiences. And the question is, when the Spirit convicts you of sin, how will you respond? What will you do? So Stephen begins, he begins the discourse going all the way back to Abraham. Why? Because Abraham gives us a key to responding in the Holy Spirit. The promises that God gave to Abraham. As we looked at Abraham, here's what we saw. Three things. Abraham was obedient to what God told him to do. God said, go to a land that I will show you. Abraham was obedient. The first thing that we see in responding to the Holy Spirit. We have to be obedient. The second thing is, Abraham had faith in God. God promised Abraham that he would have a child. He was 75 years old when he received that promise. And it will be 25 years before a child comes, before the child of promise is born. But the Bible says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. His faith was in God. Not in the circumstances that told him why it couldn't be. He had faith in God. So we see obedience and faith in God, in God's promises. God will keep his word to us. The third thing we see in Abraham is endurance. Now there was times during the 25 years of waiting, he struggled with endurance, wasn't there? Sure, I mean, we have that whole thing with Ishmael. We turn on the news today and we still see Ishmael and Isaac fighting. Only today we call them the Palestinians and the Israelis or the Arabs or anybody else in the Middle East in Israel. It it's, goes all the way back to Abraham's struggle. He struggled but he responded to the Holy Spirit rather than resisting. From Abraham, the, the story of Stephen took us to Joseph. You remember, we see Joseph answering the call to be God's champion. Prior to that was, was Abraham. Now it's Joseph. And when Joseph began to tell his brothers of the dreams that God was giving them, his brothers, they, they didn't look down on it, right? They became jealous because of the way that, that the father loved his son, and they reject him. They sold him into slavery. This is going to be a pattern through the leadership of the deliverers of the nation of Israel as we go through their history. The first time the deliverer comes, there's a rejection. The second time the deliverer comes, they receive Joseph, Moses, Jesus, as we work our way through the story that Stephen is laying out for. So we see the same thing in Joseph. (laughs) Sold into slavery. Now, it's not something that, that, that Joseph did that was deserving of that, but the Scripture says this little phrase, and I don't want you to lose it when we're studying the Word and when we're thinking about how God's moving and working in our life, and that is this little phrase, and God was with him. God was with him when he was a slave. God was with him when he was charged with trying to seduce Potiphar's wife, and he was sent to prison for 13 years in Egypt. The Bible says, and God was with him. God was there. God was there. God was still moving. God was still working. And the Lord raised Joseph up from that place, lowly in a prison, to the second most powerful man in the then known world, and gave him the ability to deliver the children, his brothers, the children of Israel from starvation. When the brothers came to him and he revealed himself to them, then... He was received as the deliverer. We have that famous phrase in Genesis chapter 50. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God was with him. He answered the call. Being the call, or answering the call of God's champion does not guarantee an easy life. In fact, to incur heaven's smile is also 
to have to endure hell's frown. To be pleasing to God means you are going to be on the list of the enemy and he is going to come against you. You will have struggles and suffering that's going to come as a result. And we see that in Joseph. But from Joseph, the children of Israel all go to Egypt. Then we see the perils of Egypt. We talked about it last time. They came to Egypt. Why? So that God could show them a dissatisfaction with the world. They're there in Egypt. And they're thinking everything is good. And they would have stayed in Egypt forever. But the, the Bible says that another king who didn't know Joseph came up. And what did that other king do? Began to kill their children. Began to slaughter all the male children. Because he was afraid of the power of the children of Israel. And so they began to languish in bondage. And in that languishing, they learned that this world, this place where we are at, this doesn't satisfy. There's something else. There's something else that we're created for. Every person goes through that in the perils of Egypt when they come to a place where they understand that this doesn't satisfy. So what did they do? They called out. They called out on the Lord, and the Lord heard their cry, and he brought Moses, the next person in the story. What do we see? Moses raised in the best schools of Egypt, but not willing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He didn't take the, the opportunity to become a part of the royal household, but rather to continue to be known as a Hebrew child that was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And so, feeling... This, this desire in his heart to deliver his people. He slays an Egyptian. And in trying to make peace between two brothers, they charge him. They say, we know that you killed that Egyptian. You're going to kill us like you killed him. And Moses, being afraid, ran to the backside of the desert. The first time Moses presented himself to the nation, he is rejected. But he's not ready yet. He goes to the backside of the desert... For 40 years, he's a shepherd in the, in the middle of no place, learning how to deal with people who occasionally can be a pain. Because occasionally sheep are a pain. They go places where you didn't want them to go. They do things you didn't want them to do. And you got to go gather them up and fix all those problems. Remember I, I shared with you, D.L. Moody said that Moses spent 40 years becoming somebody in the schools of Egypt and 40 years on the backside of the desert becoming nobody so that he could fi finish out his life in the last 40 years learning what God can do with a nobody who puts himself in the hands of Almighty God. And so it leads us from Moses to the plan of God to deliver the children of Israel. So God's going to deliver. Moses, his champion, rises up. The Lord reveals himself to Moses. And when he reveals himself to Moses, Moses what? Responds to the Holy Spirit. He responds in reverential fear. He responds in submission. And then we see this little key in, in chapter 7, this little picture I love, which is God's response to suffering. You remember? God's response to suffering was God said, I see, I hear, <coughs> I have come down. And I send you. That was the message that he had for Moses. I don't think that message has changed today. If we look at, at Matthew, the final chapter of Matthew and the Great Commission, I think we see the same thing there. I see your suffering. I hear your cry. I have come down to deliver. And I send you. Just like he sends us today. God's, God revealing his response to suffering. But we also see that Moses struggled with resisting. When God said, I'm sending you, Moses came up with several reasons why he shouldn't go. Remember? Oh, no, that's, that's, that's not really going to be what I need to do. Go find somebody else. And so, ultimately, the Lord leads him to a place where he's finally willing to submit and move forward. And God delivers the people through him. And then we see the problems in the wilderness. We saw the miracles. You guys remember the miracles, right? The parting of the Red Sea. The incredible things that God did through, through His power for the nation of Israel. The pillar of fire at night. The cloud by day. The manna that they were fed all through the desert as they make their way 
to Sinai, to the receiving of the law. But what we discover in that time is it's not the miracles or the mighty works of God that changes the nature of men. And we talked about that. You come up with all the laws you want to come up with. You cannot change the nature of a man with laws. I was sharing on Wednesday. It wouldn't matter if you came through and took away every firearm on the face of the earth. If you think that will stop men from killing men, you're crazy. We will kill each other with sticks and stones. <laughs> we will have those struggles. Because that's in the nature of a man. And if we want to change that, then we change it by changing, changing man's nature but what do we see the children of israel they see all these miracles all these mighty works all these powerful things the expressions of god there but the bible says they were disobedient remember the first part of responding to the holy spirit (coughs) is to be obedient then the first part of resisting is going to be to be disobedient they were disobedient to god's word to god's direction to the lord they were disobedient to him unwilling to obey And then they lacked faith in God's promises. How many times do we see the children of Israel crying out from the wilderness, We're going to starve, you brought us out here to kill us. We're going to die of thirst, you brought us out here to kill us. We're going to be slaughtered by Pharaoh's army, you brought us out here to kill us. That was their view of the God who was delivering them. They had a lack of faith in the promises of God. And they struggled with endurance. And so they resist what God is doing in their life. They resist what the Holy Spirit is working. And the Bible tells where the trouble is. The trouble's in the heart. And the nature of man. The nature of man had to be changed. Apart from Jesus Christ, the greatest gift ever given, coming and giving Himself for us, there would not be a change in anyone's life. How did the change in, in David, for example, his Was it just magical? No. The Bible says he was anointed, touched by the Holy Spirit. And each of the heroes, each of the champions, what do we see? A life submitted to God, surrendered to the Lord, submitted to the Holy Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to move and work in and through them. The same is necessary. There has to be a change. On Wednesday we were studying through Elijah. And we saw Elijah in the the battle with the, the priests of Baal. And they came down and they, they, they saw fire from heaven consume the sacrifice for Elijah while the other priests calling to Baal had nothing come down. And they saw this incredible miracle. And there seems to be this move of revival in the people's lives. And even King Ahab says, well, Yahweh is God. He proved it. And then they go back to Jezreel where there's a little woman sitting there. Her name is Jezebel. And Ahab comes to Jezebel and says, you won't believe it, but... You know, that God you worship, I'm not sure he's real. I think, I think Yahweh's real. He tells her the story. And she runs out and finds Elijah and says, Listen, whatever you did to my priests you think is bad, the same thing is going to happen to you by tomorrow. I'll kill you. And the Bible says Elijah ran away. He ran away because he was so frustrated by the miracle that he just shown, and it, and it still wouldn't change the nature of man. So he runs and he finds himself where? Mount Sinai. Same place where we see Moses. Same place. He goes there and he hides himself in a cleft of a rock in a little cave. And as he's there in that little cave, God comes to him and says, What are you doing here? And Elijah says, Well, uh, I'm the only one left, Lord. I have been very zealous for you and I've been doing all these things. But it's not changing. The people aren't changing. They won't change. And God showed him. God showed him a mighty tornado that tore the rocks. And God showed him a big fire that burned and scorched everything around. And then the Lord showed him an earthquake that shook the earth. But in each one of those instances, the Bible says, but God was not in the tornado or the earthquake or the fire. And then in the gentle silence... That's where God was. You see, sooner or later, God will judge. And he'll send the tornado, or the earthquake, or the fire. 
those three things do not change the nature of man. The Bible does not say that the judgment of God will lead men to repentance. What does it say? It says the goodness of God leads men to repentance. It's the gentle silence. It's the whispers. The whis- what's the whisper? The word for whisper is ruach. It is the word for spirit. It is the gentle work of the spirit in someone's life that changes their nature. That's what God was telling Elijah. And then at the end of that whole speech, he says to Elijah again, what are you doing here? Get up and go and anoint Hazael and Jehu and Elisha. And I'm going to bring my judgment through Hazael and Jehu. And who Hazael doesn't kill, Jehu will kill. And who Jehu doesn't kill, Elisha will kill. And then you look in their ministries and what do you see? Hazael, a man of war, the judgment of God coming through and and wiping out those who were disobedient. Jehu kills Jezebel and finally strickens the, the land from her influence. But none of that changes the nature of a man. It's just God's judgment. It's just the end. What changes the nature of the man? Elisha, the sword of Elisha, you know what it was? The spirit. Elisha never had a sword. What did he have? The word of God. What did he have? The ruach. And he changes men by the power of the Holy Spirit. The writer of Ephesians, a fellow that we've been introduced today named Saul, who changed his name to Paul. He writes in Ephesians, and such were some of you. What were we? Murderers, backbiters, all these things that he lists out in the beginning part of of chapter 2 in Ephesians. What's his point? Well, we who were dead have been made alive through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The nature of man changed. And that's what really begins to change things. Stephen is telling them these things so that they would recognize in order for our attitude to change, in order for our world to change, it's not going to be how much money can we make with the temple or how much anger or, or war can we make with Rome. What's going to change is when we allow the Spirit of God to change our nature. When we allow... But that's, that's not where they were. You see, they had one other issue. The other issue is the presence of God. You see, they believed, the nation of Israel at this time, they believed that the presence of God dwelt in the temple. And the only way to know God or to see God was to, to come to the temple. So they charged Stephen, you remember, with blasphemy against the temple. So he begins to respond to them. And he gives them again a history lesson of the temple. Listen, in in verse 44, he says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness. The tabernacle of witness. What was that? When Moses went up on the mountain and received the law, he also got blueprints. Blueprints for a tabernacle. You want to do an amazing study, doing a study through the tabernacle. Every single implement, piece of wood, silver and gold, the color... Whatever they used, all points to Christ. Every piece in the tabernacle. The scripture says he built it according to the pattern that was given to him. The tabernacle. Stephen goes to the tabernacle. Instead of pointing at the temple, he goes to the tabernacle. Here's what the tabernacle taught them. It symbolized the Christ, the Messiah. And it it was something that dwelt in the middle of the people. They would encamp all around it. It was dead center in the middle. And when God wanted to move, His Spirit would move, and the tabernacle would camp up and begin to go, and all the people would follow. The Spirit of God leading the children of Israel through the wilderness as they follow Him. What does it teach? The centrality of Christ. How important He is to our life. Every aspect. Not just one room. Not just one part of our life. Not just Sundays. He wants... Seven days a week, 365 days a year, 24 hours of the day. That's what God wants. If your heart right now is saying, well, you know, I got like two or three hours I can spare for him, but the rest of my life is busy, then you are in error. God wants all. Every bit. And so it's, it showed that centrality. So Stephen says, listen, 
The presence of God was here in the midst of the people. But their pride was in this beautiful temple that had been built. The beautiful temple that was laid out for them. Yet the tabernacle was where it all started. He says in verse 45, Which our fathers, having received in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land. So the tabernacle was central to their worship all through the wilderness. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness. When they went to the promised land, it came with them into the promised land. Joshua comes in, and we see the deliverance of the people. What's he saying? We see in the presence of God, in the middle of the people, with the people, not in the building, with the people. Every aspect of the tabernacle showing the centrality of Christ. But the scripture goes on in verse forty-six or in verse forty-five. It says, "And uh, whom the Gentiles in the land, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, still a tabernacle, still a tabernacle, all the way through David. David didn't have a temple. We see the presence of God with David, the man after God's own heart. We see David able to follow the Lord and respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in his life when he was guilty, when he sinned." He would repent, and God would restore. So we see that all the way through, all the way through, coming through David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling place. David wants to build the temple. God says, no, your hands are too bloody. (coughs) Your son, your son will build the temple. And that's what it says in verse 47, but Solomon built him a house. Right there, at that point in the history of Israel, they start... To decline. It's been said that every every movement of God starts just as that. It starts as a movement. And eventually the movement builds a monument. And that monument in time becomes a mausoleum. A place without any life. There was a movement with the children of Israel. In the tabernacle of God. In the tent. And the people were blown away. And everything about that tabernacle from the outside looked ugly. There was no beauty in it until you walked in the front door. When you walked in the front door, you saw gold everywhere. But from the outside, it's just a a goatskin tent. Nobody thinking anything of it. Nobody desiring to go. Nobody wanting to, to necessarily be a part of it. But they had that centrality and focus on the worship of God there in the tabernacle. And then Solomon built God a house. Wow, it became such a monument. One of the seven wonders of the world, the, 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 tabern- or the temple built by Solomon. We can only guess to the beauty, the magnificence of the, of the temple, but no longer did the temple specifically point to all the different aspects of Christ, at least in His first coming. Because outwardly it's beautiful. And they began to to restrain who was able to approach. And now the women could only go so far, and then the men could go a little further, and Gentiles, they were further out yet. And you had this resistance against coming into the presence of God. From the time of Solomon, Solomon who was gifted in all that wisdom, Israel declines within one lifetime from the life of Solomon the nation splits, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, and they're never joined again for almost 400 years. They're divided. Their worship is distorted and, and destroyed. There's periods of revival in the south, but in the north it's just anarchy. Nobody following God, nobody being a part of anything. Now I'm not saying that the temple is responsible for that. What I am saying is people's attitude toward it. Well, look, it's a, that's, that's where God is. He lives in that place. And we live in the land that has that place, so we're good. And that was the level of their relationship. Not totally unlike the level of relationship that we see oftentimes within the church. Well, I go to that church. That makes me saved. No, going to church don't make you saved. Going into your garage doesn't make you a car. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ that makes you saved. Your relationship with Him. And and so here Stephen is laying out as they're pointing to the temple and thinking that they have salvation because they have the building. 
He says, what about the tabernacle? Do you remember all the things that the tabernacle pointed to? But then he says in verse 48, however, the most high does not dwell in temples made with hands. Like the prophets say, does God live in a house? The Bible tells us that as the prophets in verse 49, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. God's too big to fit in any building. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? The prophets told them this, but they put their hope that their relationship was right with God because they had the temple. We got the temple. So I'm good. I'm good. I, I have the presence of God here with me. But the point that Stephen is making is the presence of God is something that you have in your life. Day in, day out. It's not in a building. It's in your life. It's in who you are. It's in what you do. In the way that we respond. Though God's glory was manifested in both the tabernacle and the temple. He didn't live in either one. In fact, Solomon said these words in 1 Kings 8.27. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Solomon knew. God doesn't live here. It's a place, it's a central place where we can come and worship. But it's not about that relationship with God does not occur because we live near the temple. And the closer to the temple, the more holy you are. You want to try... Try to buy a, a, a purchase a piece of land on the Mount of Olives. That's probably the most expensive piece of ground on the face of the earth. Now, for you to go look at it, it doesn't look like all that much. But wow, it's close. Close in proximity. That's a place where Messiah one day is going to come, so it has value. So people are buried there, so they can be the first one resurrected when Christ returns. Crazy people. But that's the way people are. They think that's their relationship with God. It's a religion. It's being bound up to rules and regulations and concepts. And Stephen's saying, you guys are missing a boat. You were all caught up in all these other things. Isaiah 66, 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? Where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made. And all these things exist, says the Lord. But listen. Here's what the verse goes on to say. <clears throat> but on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the same thing that the prophets were saying in Isaiah. It's not about what you can build for me. It's about a relationship. Even then, it's about a relationship with God, that you're honoring the Lord in what you do, not because of some temple, because of some building, because of something. You can resist the Holy Spirit by limiting God's presence to a temple. Before we're too hard on them, you can also resist the Holy Spirit by limiting God's presence to a certain type of worship, or a certain denomination, or a certain whatever. A certain thing, whatever it might be, and say, well, that's where the presence of God is. That's where the presence of God is. I hear people say all the time, well, I don't like this style of worship. I don't, I don't like the hymns. I love the hymns. Why do I? The, the hymns could say it all. The, the guys who wrote those were incredibly gifted in, in the concepts of, of the doctrine of, of God as they put those lyrics together for the hymns. And people say, oh, I can't worship to that. That style of music doesn't move me. That's okay, because worship's not about moving you. Worship is about honoring God. So we can do it with an organ and singing hymns. Or we can do it with an electric guitar and singing songs. Or we can do it without any instruments 
and just making a joyful noise. We can worship the Lord no matter what, but if we think the presence of God only exists in one form, in one type, we're just like them who thought God only exists in the temple. And he's not going to be found outside of that temple. Yet Stephen said he was outside of the temple when he was in the tabernacle. He was in the midst of the people. There was no temple or tabernacle with Abraham. Relationship. This is what it's about. Relationship and not these ideas. So then he comes to his point. In verse 51 he begins the point. What's his point? Your attitude. This is the attitude of those in the Sanhedrin who have charged him. He says, this is your attitude. He says, you are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now that sounds fairly harsh. And I think a lot of times when we read that, we get the idea that now Stephen is <clears throat> filled with passion, which he may have been, and, and, and shouting them down, yelling at them. But that's not what we see. What we see is him saying to them, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is your sin. You are stiff-necked. Stiff-necked means you are hard and callous and you cannot feel. You're, you are so callous that you cannot feel the presence of the Holy Spirit even in the words that I'm sharing with you. That's what he was saying to them. You're hard. And then he says you are uncircumcised and harder ears. The whole concept of circumcision was to say that, that I belong to God. That I'm consecrated to Him. Before Joshua went into the promised land, all his army, the Lord said, Hey, all this time you guys have been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. Nobody was circumcised. So before the battle of Jericho, I want you to circumcise every male in the army. Every male who hasn't been circumcised. Sounds like a great battle plan, right? In the shadow of your enemy, circumcise all the men. Um, in case you're wondering, they're not going to feel like fighting. At all. I'm not going to feel like getting up and moving for a few days. So they're all, they're older than eight days old. It's not so bad to do it to an eight day old because I've never heard of an eight day old complaining about it. Maybe later. But these fellas, they're, what is the whole point that God said that to Joshua and the army? Consecrate yourself to me. Give yourself to me. And so for those days, in the shadow of Jericho, circumcised, unable to fight, they were fully and completely in the hands of God. If the enemy came, there's nothing we can do. Utterly consecrated. When Stephen says, you are uncircumcised in heart or ears, he's saying your heart is not consecrated to God, and your ears are not consecrated to God. You are stiff-necked, you are callous. So callous that you can't feel. One of the necessary implements of being able to play a guitar is to develop calluses on the tips of your fingers. So that you can't feel. If you're learning how to play guitar, you'll notice that the tips of your fingers hurt. Only until you get calluses. What happens when you get a callus? You are past feeling. The same thing here. This is what Stephen is saying. You guys are past feeling. You can't feel the move of the Spirit. In Proverbs... 28.14 it says, Happy is a man who is always reverent, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Same language as stiff-necked, hardening the heart. In Proverbs 29.1, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. You can no longer receive correction. That's what Stephen is saying to these guys. You're, you're deaf. You're not hearing. You're not feeling. The more we say no and resist the Holy Spirit, the less feeling we are toward the move of the Holy Spirit. And the more we resist, the less we are able to feel until we are just like them. Stephen said, you can't feel. You're hard. You're callous. You're not consecrated to God in your heart or in your ears. You don't want to hear from God. You don't want to feel the Spirit of God moving in you and through you. And then he goes on to say, which, 
He said, just at the end, I want you to notice this. As your fathers did, so do you. Up until this moment, it has always been our fathers. Now he says your fathers. He's changing. Now, he's not talking about Abraham and Joseph and Moses, the guys who responded to the Holy Spirit. Now he's talking about the fathers who resisted the Holy Spirit, and he calls them your fathers. Your fathers, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. That's another title for Messiah, the Christ. Of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers. He looks back at the, at the fathers of old. Which of the prophets did they listen to? They didn't listen to Jeremiah. They threw him in a, in a pit, in a dungeon. They didn't listen to Isaiah. In fact, when Isaiah spoke in Isaiah chapter 66, most commentators believe that section of scripture that we shared where he says that I dwell in the heaven of heavens, not in buildings made with hand, that that's when they sawed Isaiah in two. <clears throat> Which of the prophets didn't you kill? The last one was John the Baptist. You remember what happened to him, right? Off with his head. They wouldn't listen. And now they are guilty of, of taking the life of the Messiah. In 2 Chronicles <coughs> chapter 30, verse 7, there's a time in Israel's history. Hezekiah is king. The northern kingdom has gone into slavery of Assyria. They've been conquered. And now the Assyrians are coming south. And Hezekiah, and they think they're going to wipe out the south. And the south has a revival. They see this stuff going on around them, and they begin to have a revival. The revival is caused because they realize that they were resisting the Holy Spirit. And so now they want to respond. They want to respond to what God is doing. They want to respond to what the prophets are saying. They want to respond to what God's Word teaches. And so Hezekiah says in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 7, as a warning... Do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers so that he gave them up to desolation as you have seen. Now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourself to the Lord. Enter his sanctuary, which he has sanctified, and serve the Lord your God that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. See, Hezekiah challenges the people during their revival to draw near to the Lord. To stop being stiff-necked and resisting what God is doing and respond to what God is doing and then present yourself to Him and say, Here I am. Remember the phrase we talked about earlier where God says, I have seen, I have heard, I have come down. What's the last one? I send you. People all the time, they, 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 they cry about the atrocities that man does to man. But God has chosen. He came down and He has brought His deliverance so that the nature of man could be changed in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then what does He say? I send you. Well, I can't believe all that stuff that's going on in Africa. <clears throat> the things that are happening in a variety of places throughout the world. Listen to what God said. I send you. He's not calling us to sit comfortably on our couch and go nowhere and do nothing. Now, I'm not saying He's calling us all to Africa. But He is sending us to be a part of the solution to the problems. He's sending us to be part of the solution that people need. When people are hungry, we can come up next to them and pray for them to be filled. But that doesn't necessarily fill their stomach. We can come up next to them and pray for them to be filled and hand them a box of food, though. Can't we? I send you. See, the, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin could never be bothered with any of those things. Because they were busy with weightier matters. Matters of self. Matters of their own house and their own wealth and their own ways and not willing to serve, to move, to be, to allow God to use them in a variety of situations. Jesus said in Matthew 23, you remember when we studied that, the similar words to Stephen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! 
<coughs> hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Now, can you imagine? These are the same guys that are talking to Stephen. These are the same guys who crucified Christ, who built up monuments for the prophets and said, if we'd have been back in those days, we wouldn't have done it. But they were guilty of killing John the Baptist. They were guilty of putting Jesus on the cross. They were guilty of killing Stephen. It's the same. The accusation that Jesus brings is the same. And ultimately, he says in verse 53, they're disobedient to the law, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Now listen, in verse 54, it says, And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. They were convicted. What do you do with the conviction of the Holy Spirit? What will you do? You will respond like one of these two groups of people. Like Stephen, who followed in the way of Jesus Christ. Or like the crowd, who resisted the Holy Spirit. And you see it in their actions. They're cut to the heart. They're convicted. They know the truth of what's being said. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. They're so angry at the messenger, just like their fathers were angry at the prophets. Same way. Same anger. They're not angry, they're not considering the truth of what's been said and repenting. Instead, they're hearing the truth of what's been said and they're going to kill the messenger. But look, it says in comparison, but he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, (coughs) gazed into heaven. And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The comparison, one group gnashing their teeth looking to destroy Stephen, looking for the glory of God. His circumstance, by the way, is not all that good. But he's looking for the glory of God. But he, being full of spirit, looked up into the heavens. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing by the right hand of the Father. Standing by the right hand intimates that he is there in judgment. It also symbolizes the fact that he is there to welcome Stephen home. And Stephen recognizing that this is for God's glory, the things that he's suffering, the things that are going on in his life. He goes on. He says, look to them. Look, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man at the right hand. And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. So on one hand, they're gnashing their teeth. They react to the word, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, by gnashing their teeth, being angry at the one who brought the word. The second thing they do is they stop their ears and they stop listening. We're resisting. We don't want to hear anything else you have to say. And they run and they grab him. Now, I don't want you to think that the stoning happens there on the street. It doesn't. The Bible says they took him outside the city. As they're grabbing Stephen and as they're taking him outside the city, I promise you, He's looking around and he's thinking, Lord, it was this road that they drug you out. Lord, it was this gate that they took you out. You know what the gate's called? St. Stephen's Gate. You know where it leads? Gatshmone. Gethsemane. Where did Gethsemane come from? Where did the place of the cross come from? It's a stone quarry. What do they do in stone quarries besides cut stones? Stone people. They bring him out to that place. Bring him outside the city. They drag him out. They're so angry at the word that that he brought. And it says, And the witnesses lay down their, their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. I want you to picture it. Saul, who was a part of all the proceedings. We'll see that in chapter 8. <clears throat> part of everything that had gone on. Saul is there. And all the witnesses... Those are the false witnesses that they brought against him. They're the first ones to have to throw the stones. They lay their coats down at the feet of Saul. And then they put Stephen out there in the middle. Now, if you were submitting to the judgment and saying, I am guilty, you would kneel at the stoning. And then the witnesses would hit you from about 10 feet above with a big stone. And it would be over in one thump. But if you were innocent, you stood And the witnesses would stand before you 
and cast stones into your chest and stomach until they forced you to kneel. So Stephen is standing in the place, not far from where the cross was. He's standing there, and, and it says, And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In Hebrew, that's a child's prayer. The same words Jesus said from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's the same. It's a child's prayer. It's a child's prayer. But it sounds just like Jesus, what, what Stephen says, because he's in the same place. He's being attacked by the same men for giving the same word, for pointing out their resistance of the Holy Spirit. And so as he's standing there, the witnesses, it says, they stoned him as he was calling out to the Lord, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So as he stands there and says, Lord, I commit my spirit to you, they begin hitting him in the chest and the midsection with stones. Then we come to the next verse. What does the next verse say? Then he knelt down. So as the stones would hit him in the midsection, it would drive a man to his knees. And so he dropped down to his knees. And then he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And he breathed his last and fell asleep. It's what the early church called dying all the time. What did it speak to? The truth of a resurrection. You're not gone forever. You're just gone from us for now. But there will be a resurrection. The scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So they kill him as he's speaking the same words Jesus spoke. <coughs> Remember I told you there's two ways that you can respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You can respond like Stephen, who says, I'm looking for God's glory. And he looks up into heaven and he sees it and he shares it with the people who are around him. He doesn't respond in anger. He doesn't respond upset. He doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't tell somebody, you know, sometimes you just got to tell somebody what you think of them. But that's unscriptural, by the way. <laughs> you don't have to just tell somebody what you think of them. The Bible says if you have ought against your brother, bring it to your brother so that there can be peace and restoration. It's not designed to be a cutting. It's designed to be a restoring. That's the attitude of the word. The Bible says in, in James that the righteousness or that the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. That means if I lose control, I will not glorify God. The Bible tells me that self-control is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So is joy, peace, long-suffering, love, fruit of the Holy Spirit, blossoming in the life of a believer who's what? Responding to the Holy Spirit. Resisting to the Holy Spirit, that's a whole other list of things. Those are called... The, the, the flesh. And the flesh is all the other. Wrath, clamor, anger, frustration, bitterness. All of those things. So when we look at our lives and we hear the words of Stephen and we say, Man, I want to be someone who's responding to the Holy Spirit. Think about your actions. Think about the choices that you make. Think about the way that we treat one another. Think about the way that we look at the problems that are out there in the world and ask yourself, if you were to take a picture of my life, videotape my life, am I walking the path of Christ? Am I walking the path of Christ and when I'm attacked, I don't attack in return, but I commit myself into the hands of the Father like Stephen did? Am I responding to what the Holy Spirit is doing or am I resisting? <clears throat> am I resisting because of fear? If I am, I'm walking in the flesh. And I'm going to have struggles. Now, it doesn't mean we don't struggle between the two. Isn't that what Paul said? Paul says that very same thing in Romans chapter 7. I know what I ought to do, but the power to do it sometimes eludes me. Anybody ever feel that way? I know I ought to respond to the Holy Spirit, but the power to do it eludes me. Then what do I do in that moment? Instead of complaining about it, I drop. And I say, 
Lord, help me. Help me respond to this properly. Help me respond to what your spirit is doing in my heart. Not let me fight for my rights. That's not the attitude of Christ. That's not how we learn Christ. How do we learn Christ? We learn Christ as the one through whom a relationship with God can be won simply by putting our faith and trust in Him. So when we face those things, like Stephen, and the people coming against him, it's a world against Stephen. He responds. And he gives them a message about their resistance. And they choose to continue to resist. And Stephen chooses to respond. For you and I, we're going to be faced with the same things. We're going to have opportunity to decide. What are we going to do? Are we going to respond or resist? God wants to do some things. And not just in me. Or not just through me. The body of Christ is many parts. And we all serve a purpose within that body of Christ. Every one of us. Some of us have gifts differing from others. Some people here have a gift of prophecy. Some people here have, have gifts of the word of knowledge. Some people here have, have gifts of, of administration. Some people here have gifts to be able to teach. Some people here have gifts. If we're not using our gifts, our body is not healthy. If we're not utilizing that which God has given us in the manner for which God calls us to, to, to minister, are we resisting? Are we waiting and hoping that someone else will do it? What is our reaction? I'll tell you, you look at Stephen and you think there was little or no purpose. I'll tell you this, <clears throat> most of the guys who were listening were not affected by his message. You notice I said most. There was one guy, chapter 8 says, who was, <clears throat> who was casting his vote for the death of Stephen. His name was Saul, the man whose feet they lay their jackets at. He never forgets. He don't never forget. You know how I know? I've read the rest of the book of Acts. Paul's going to refer back to Stephen a couple of times. He's going to refer back to it because that was a day that God began to work in his life. And through Paul. Saul, you see, means anointed, exalted one. And when he came to know Jesus Christ, he could no longer walk around called the anointed and exalted one. So he changed his name to Paul, which means little. Little. And he would go on to write 13 books in the Bible. Become scripture. Be a part of multiple missionary ventures that are going to change the face of the world. He heard. And in two chapters, he will choose to respond instead of resist. It's never too late for anybody. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for this time. We can study, <coughs> study your word, God, and to see your hand move in the pages of Scripture in a mighty way. Lord, we pray, Father, that you would do a work in our heart. Our desire would be to respond to you. Father, may we be men and women who are responding to what you're asking us to do. Responding to what your word is teaching. Responding to how your spirit is moving. That your being glorified is more important than our life. God, I pray that you would do an amazing work in and through the body here. That we would grow to be functioning in a healthy way, Lord, utilizing our gifts, making a difference. For God, you have seen and you have heard and you have come down and you send us. So God, may we respond one life at a time, 
May we respond one life at a time and change our world by changing the nature of man to do our part to see men and women come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would move in and through us in a mighty way. And we give you all the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.